P. Washington and stage diva Sarah Bernhardt among his biggest fans. Yet when this highly regarded actor appeared on stage, he looked like this, his face hidden behind a degrading mask of burnt cork. It was a bizarre tradition handed down by minstrelsy, the most popular form of entertainment in the United States during most of the 19th century. Black-faced minstrels began touring the country in the 1830s as white men blackened their faces to portray exaggerated and derogatory caricatures of African Americans on stage. The minstrels spread the stereotype of blacks as shiftless, lazy, comical, and childlike. On stage, minstrels traded jokes about eating watermelon and stealing chickens, then sang songs about their love for their masters and the old plantation. This stereotype nourished the idea, then held by many whites, that blacks were simple-minded and somewhat less than human. Minstrelsy painted a portrait of blacks that was reassuring and non-threatening for a largely white audience. When African Americans began taking to the stage in larger numbers after the Civil War, the minstrel show provided a major gateway, and keeping with tradition, many black performers appeared in blackface. Born in the Bahamas in 1874, Egbert Austin Williams grew up in Riverside, California. As a teenager in the early 1890s, he joined a minstrel show, but he despised the thick, sticky makeup and swore never to wear it again. After quitting the show, Williams teamed up with George Walker, another ambitious and talented young man, to form a song and dance duo that performed on the streets and in the saloons of San Francisco. In time, Williams and Walker decided to work their way across the country with the goal of reaching New York and performing on Broadway. But it was a bumpy road east. After being fired from a show in Chicago, they found work in a Detroit theater. And that's where Williams broke his vow. He smeared on burnt cork and sang a ragtime song he'd just written. The reaction was overwhelming. Greeted by raucous laughter and applause, the team scored its biggest success to date. For the rest of his career, Williams rarely appeared on stage without blackface. Over time, he developed the character of a Jonah man, a poor soul who attracted hard luck and trouble like a magnet. It was a characterization that struck both a sad and humorous chord with black and white audiences alike. After arriving in New York, Williams and Walker scored a big hit in vaudeville, and within a few years, they formed their own theatrical troupe. In 1903, they took their show, In Dahomey, to Broadway, the first Broadway show written, directed, and entirely performed by blacks. Williams and Walker then took In Dahomey to London, where they played a royal command performance at Buckingham Palace before the King and Queen of England. After ill health forced George Walker to retire in 1909, impresario Florence Ziegfeld hired Williams to star in his infamous Ziegfeld Follies, the only black performer in an all-white cast. In addition, Williams became the first black recording star, releasing more than 70 records, including his theme song, Nobody, which he co-wrote. In 1916, he became the first black actor to direct and star in his own film, A Natural Born Gambler, where he performed one of his most revered bits of stage business, the poker game Pantomime.
In the film, Williams has been arrested for gambling, but in his cell, he dreams of another big game. Though he received rave reviews, achieved wider fame, and was paid handsomely for all of his pioneering efforts, Williams grew restless and depressed. He faced relentless racial discrimination offstage, often unable to stay at the same hotels or eat in the same restaurants with the rest of the Ziegfeld Follies cast. And he felt trapped by the professional limitations of playing a stereotype. I want to be the interpreter of the Negro on stage, Williams said. The Negro has a place, and a big one, in the history of this country, and he has to be shown in the drama just as he exists in real life. But Williams could not find a way to break through the stereotypes that had become so deeply embedded in American culture. He retreated to his doting wife in the sanctuary of their well-appointed home in New York's Harlem neighborhood frequently locking himself away in his vast library to study books on philosophy and African history. And as depression consumed him, he consumed large amounts of alcohol. Legendary comedian W.C. Fields, who co-starred with Williams in the Ziegfeld Follies, called him the funniest man I ever saw, the saddest man I ever knew. In late January of 1921, Bert Williams was in Chicago performing in a new play he was hoping to take to Broadway. He caught a bad cold. Against the advice of his doctors, he refused to take time off to rest. The cold developed into pneumonia. At the show's next stop in Detroit, he collapsed in the wings of the stage after his opening scene. As usual, he was in blackface. A week later, on February 4, 1922, Bert Williams died at the age of 47. His life forever linked with the heavy cost paid to racial stereotypes and discrimination in America. So yeah, so here we have a story of a person who, by all measures of, of what we would consider American success, uh, lived a very depressed and sad life uh, because he was denied the one thing he really wanted to be, which was himself. And he could only find success by living the stereotypes of his time. Um, and, and I think the reason I like this video is it really does emphasize the power of identity and how identity can shape us uh, emotionally and, and psychologically. Um, 
and what it means. And I, I know we've talked about this uh, in, in relations to uh, stereotypes about Native Americans and, and, and others in, in past classes, but this is, uh, I think, one of the best examples of the power of identity and, and what it can do when it's denied. So yes, according to all uh, you know, so socioeconomic uh, measures of the time, very successful individual, very sad person. So with that in mind, let, let's look at the rest of uh, what we call social identity theory and keep this, uh, this story of, of Burke in, 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 in the light as we move along. So first of all, to explain what, what really social identity theory is, is it's what we call a meta theory. And the purpose of a meta theory is to explain consistently a wide range of phenomena. So for example, social identity and social categorization uh, theory takes in uh, our thought processes with social cognition, our social interactions, who we choose and choose not to interact with, our inner group behaviors uh, between groups, and, and it provides different levels of social analysis. We can look at it at the individual level, we can look at it at small group level, and we can go and look at complete cultures using this theory. So just to kind of uh, provide some background on why the theory was developed and why um, uh, it was it was really presented. Uh, we go back to a, a psychologist named Floyd Allport, and uh, Floyd Allport um, came up with something called individual psychology, and what he believed in, and it, it was kind of the basis of and in response to what we call uh, the American approach of individualism. Okay. And we'll talk about cultural differences of individualism and collectivism a little bit later in the course. But basically what individualism is, is this notion that everything a person is, their behaviors, their successes, their failures are due to the individual and not due to any other factor. And that all analysis of, of a person's problem needs to be done at the individual level. And we can see the consequences of this. This is the basis of modern medicine. It is the basis of if you go to a counselor or a social worker, they're going to analyze the individual and diagnose the individual and say it's the individual that really needs to uh, be, be that center of approach. Um, later on, especially after World War II, there was uh, two individuals, Taj Hafel and Turner, uh, starting in about 1942. Their work really took off in the 70s and early 80s. They, they, they questioned this idea of individual uh, um, individuals being totally responsible for their actions. Because uh, Taj Eiffel, of course, uh, he was Jewish and he just came out of uh, World War II. He had lots of family who were eliminated by the, the Nazis through the Holocaust. And he sat there and he wondered, 
does that make each individual German person a bad person? Are they psychopaths? Is it a nation of psychopaths? Literally millions of Germans were either actively involved or passively evolved, involved in the termination of millions. And Toshfell was really not satisfied with this idea that there's just this one big population of psychopaths that are willing to eliminate life at their own will and their own decision. Um, and so he started to investigate this notion of maybe it's not the individual, but maybe it is the identity they have with their culture, with their society, with, 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 with being a German person. Okay. And really, the most convincing evidence uh, for this is that there was a, a German town in Germany that was in a very isolated area. It was surrounded by mountains. There was pretty much just one road in, one road out. And for the most part of World War II, this, this, this town was pretty well left alone. It, it didn't get much of the German propaganda. They barely even knew a war was going on. And um, they, they were living neighbor to neighbor with their Jewish uh, 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 compadres, their com Jewish neighbors. They broke bread with them. They were friends. They did business together. There was none of this so they weren't being influenced even by the Nazi propaganda about being anti-Jewish, okay? But as the war went on and, and um, the, the German government needed to recruit more people to, to go into the military, there was a military brigade that went into the town to try and recruit more German soldiers. But one thing about this town is it was mostly filled with elderly people. Uh, there wasn't very many young people in the town to be, to be gotten. But the German commander who went into the town went to the German citizens. These, these are men, uh, 50, 60, sometimes 70 years old, and asked them if they were harboring these Jews. What were they doing with these Jewish people as Germans? And the German uh, command said, you need to get rid of these people. And literally in a town untouched, just by the influence of saying, you're not German enough if you don't do this. In that town, elderly men rounded up 10,000 of their Jewish neighbors some at gunpoint and some shot at gunpoint their Jewish neighbors and shipped them off to concentration camps only because a German authority came in and said, you're not German enough. They sent their neighbors to death just because of that notion that they weren't German enough. And this story really convinced Tajafel that there is something more to the reasons why we do what we do, uh, especially when it comes to uh, things that you would think as, uh, as, as, as uh, evil or, or psychopathic.
And then when we start reviewing, again, going back to that Zimbardo video that we, we watched earlier in, in the class about how once a, 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 uh, a guard identified as a guard and a prisoner identified as a prisoner, they instantly started to get in those roles and had a hard time getting out of those roles. Uh, in in the uh, Milgram studies, once the person felt like their role was a teacher, they weren't going to fail as a teacher. It wasn't because the individuals were psychopathic that they would shock someone up to 450 volts. It was they had a role. They had a duty as being defined as a teacher in that experiment. So this is kind of the basis of the social identity idea, that once we integrate an ID identity into us, then we will act according to that identity. We should note that uh, when it does come to identity, there, there are uh, you know, three different things that we should talk about, okay? The first one is actually the third one on the list, which is our self-concept. If I draw a circle here, this is my best representation of a self-concept. A self-concept is everything that you can say is you, okay? So it's material, what you own. It is uh, being father, mother, it is being a student, it's being an employee, it's being uh, a good person uh, or, or the like, okay? But regardless of that, it was theorized. So William James was the person who came up with the idea of the self -conflict. And he is the individual known as the father of American psychology. And he wrote a, a bunch of textbooks that uh, have been used for over a century in a lot of graduate programs. But he divided the self-concept into two different types of identity. The personal identity, which he actually originally called the spiritual identity, is those things that are relevant to you and an interpersonal process. It is everything that makes you uniquely you, regardless of your group membership, okay? Social identity is the individual's knowledge that they belong to a certain social groups together with some emotional and value significance to him of this group membership. So our social identity is our recognition that I'm, for example, a father, I'm a professor, I'm a psychologist, I'm a husband, um, I'm a community member, uh, and all of those, those things that affiliate with a group that have some emotion and value significance to it are my social identity. So if we were to divide this, we would put kind of our personal identity right here and our social identity would fit in the rest. And indeed, we would see some overlap between our personal identity and our social identity. And indeed, there are a lot of theorists who theorize there really is no 
difference between personal and social identities because through language, everything about us is socially derived, meaning that there isn't really anything unique about us individually because everything is told to us through our social world. But that's, a, that's an extreme example of, 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 of identity theory. So this is kind of the concept of, of identity. And later in the course, we're going to do something called social identity mapping, where you will actually take and look at all of your identities and rate them and really take a, a, a close look at what they do and how they um, impact your life, okay? So just to give a little bit more definition, uh, SIT or social identity theory addresses the conflict between groups through identification with groups on a personal and group level, okay? People just don't hate because they're a member of a group. People hate because they identify with that group because there's an emotional attachment to it. Social categorization theory, on the other hand, provides that cognitive framework for which individuals identify the difference between us and them, okay? Now, what makes this different than a lot of the other group theories that we'll talk about? Um, uh, one, uh, and how does it differ from things like conflict theory and those other theories we talked about earlier in, this, in the semester, is that SIT emphasizes shared group meaning and definition, whoops, rather than persuasion. If you look at like, for example, conflict theory or, or any of those, there's this element that people have to be convinced to be who they are, to be a member of a group or, or, or the like. SIT suggests that persuasion isn't the big motivation. It's more of having that shared meaning and that emotional connection with someone else or a group. And it, and it also focuses on the interaction between the individual and the group, which creates a fit between individuals and groups, okay? So if we were to lay it out, this is kind of the argument of SIT. Explains group, group differences that we see in society, identities that focus on being a member of a particular group, man, woman, student, professor, athlete, scholar, Mormon, Catholic, Christian, Muslim, Democrat, Republican, and then our individual identities identify of our individual qualities. So here we have uh, identity, personal and social uh, need to think well of our identity. There's not many people who want to think negatively. We'll talk about this when it comes to things like stereotype threat and whatnot and what happens when we feel a threat to our identity here in a little while. But as of right now, we generally like to think well of, of who we are. In order to do that, we have to have a reference group. We have to have a group that we compare against. 
And then through social comparison, we distinguish between those like us and those who are different. And this leads us to our in-groups and our out-groups. And this is the basis for discrimination, okay? All right, is everyone with me so far? Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you, Keisha. Thank you, Marissa. Okay. All right. So let's take it a step further. We've already talked about why people seek out belonging, so we won't go through this again. Uh, just keep these in mind. Uh, because if you think about it, this is these are the things that we look for in our groups. We look for understanding and control and whatnot. We look for that self-enhancement and, of course, that trust, which then becomes integrated into the individual. And we, we don't feel like anything else. We don't feel like it's a group in and of itself. We feel it is us. Okay. And we know that it has a huge impact on people's emotions. So again, I think we've gone through this slide before. I'm not sure, but I'll go through it again. But when we look at emotions such as loneliness, as an example, and we establish a baseline, which is the baseline is established in, in this experiment by these two control groups that you see. And this is the baseline is what you expect the level of loneliness to be in a general population represented by the blue line for social loneliness and the green line for emotional loneliness. But in this experiment, what was specifically of interest is whether or not we activated someone's social identity, whoops, or we activated their personal identity, okay? So what we did in this, and I believe the first run was students, and then we used other occupations and parents in later runs. But in the original one that we used students, we asked one group to uh, state five positive things about being a student. In the personal identity group, we asked people to list five positive qualities they have as an individual. Okay, so what makes them unique? Five positive qualities that make them unique. And when we see people focus on themselves in isolation, we see that people are almost twice as lonely as baseline and almost three times as lonely as when we think about our identities as it relates to some group membership, such as being a student or being a parent or, um, or the like, okay? So this is kind of some basis of the importance and the positivity of social identity, because we can take this a step further and we could look at clinical issues such as clinical depression. We now have good research that shows that in the treatment modality, if you focus on the important social identities of the individuals, instead of on the individual, symptoms of depression go down what much quicker and a lot lower than when you just focus on the individual's depressive symptoms. Instead, we found if you focus on their identity with their world, that reduces depression symptoms much more effectively 
then when you have a symptom, what is your thought? What do you do? Why do you ruminate about it? What's the rumination, the more traditional individual types of treatment for depression? And so even with clinical issues such as depression, and there's been recent research dealing with anxiety, that when we focus on people's identities that is connected to the world, a lot of these issues start to wane. And we have also found that on the opposite end of it, when an identity is denied, it leads to a whole plethora of negative consequences. And it's shown in this model here. So we start with number one, which uh, is a damage or denial or, or, or hurt to one's social identity. This leads to two consequences. It leads us to question, where do I belong? And who do I belong? Which leads to uh, what we call emotional loneliness, which is not feeling like you have good, strong emotional connections with at least one other person in your world. And social, social loneliness, which is not having sufficient number of social connections in your world to feel like you can uh, be successful. This leads to what we call a failure to belong, which leads to what we call a failure to survive. And when we're constantly questioning who we are and where we belong, we start to decompensate a lot of our behaviors. And we can see that lack of identity is associated and directly predicted of things like lower mortality rates. Mortality is the probability of one uh, when someone will pass away. And a, a recent analysis as just an example is in people in middle age between 30 to 50 years old. One week of loneliness or lack of identity takes away about eight hours off of a person's life. Um, so mortality is effective. A suicidal and suicidal ideation are affected. So in a, a study uh, dealing with hospitals, um, we had people who were went to the hospital for two different kinds of uh, situations. Uh, people who just couldn't manage their depression symptoms anymore. They just became too much to handle. So they admitted themselves to an ER. And then we have people who were admitted to an ER because they had depression, but they also had severe suicidal ideation or suicidal attempt, okay? And in this situation, we gave people uh, two measures, a measure of depression, of course, and then a measure of loneliness, okay? And the interesting thing is, is both groups measured high in depression obviously. Um, and that's, that's kind of the no duck type of situation. But what separated individuals that were there because they couldn't handle their symptoms versus people who were there because of suicidal ideation or suicidal attempt was the measure of loneliness. It was only the people that there were there for the suicidal attempts and the suicidal ideation that measured high in loneliness. Okay, so here we have the situation. A lot of times 
suicide is, is blamed on depression or the depressed individual. But in most cases, we see that loneliness plays the major role. And indeed, when I worked in a, the state of Montana for the University of Montana, um, I did an analysis of all of the uh, coroner's reports for suicides in Montana's from 2013 to 2016. Why Montana? Montana and Alaska each year kind of vie for first place in suicide attempts. They, they have the highest suicide attempts in the nation. So it was kind of a, the, these questions needed to be answered. Now, the analysis of the coroner's reports did state that there were people who had chronic illnesses, that they just couldn't handle their chronic illness anymore. And that was the coroner's final uh, decision. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who end up with a certain hearing deficit where they constantly hear ringing in their ear. Um, and that is, that's highly indicative of someone who has a chronic condition that would lead to suicide, okay? But for the mass majority of other people, just before their suicide attempt, they receive some type of rejection, a divorce, um, or something like that, some type of rejection of someone intimate, okay? And we have also known for a long time that the age group and the gender that has the highest suicide rates are males between the age of 50 to 65. And we have found the reason why that is the highest rate is because that is when males are disengaging with one of their traditionally most important identities. They're disengaging from their work life and they're losing that work connection and that work identity. And we have found that that is what really precedes this age group at being high risk for suicidal behavior. Uh, we saw with the, the story of Bert, addiction is a common consequence of loss of identity and damage to identity. Uh, higher morbidity. Uh, this is another interesting one dealing with the loneliness literature and the identity literature is loneliness can predict whether someone will get a disease, that's what morbidity is, the probability of obtaining some type of chronic or life-threatening disease, it can predict morbidity just as well, if not better, than smoking, eating habits, and exercise habits. Yes, your social connections predict that just as well as, as good as you eat, how much you exercise, and whether you smoke or not. Okay. Other areas that we see that are predicted by identity and identity denial leading to loneliness and severe to thrive is we've identified homelessness. And I'll, get, I'll go through the rest of these pretty quickly. Relationship problems, chronic homelessness, psychological mood disorders, criminal behavior, aggression towards others and society, Reason why individuals enter into gangs is the lack of having something that they can identify with. Family dysfunction, losses of a job, not having well-defined roles within the relationship, 
not having a good, healthy connection with children, prejudice, hatred, closed-mindedness, and something we call self-hatred. And indeed, we can look at rioting behavior as another example as a failure of identity and what happens when an identity is damaged. Uh, for a long time, people have wondered, so why, for example, in these, in, during the pandemic, did, did uh, these riots happen where people were destroying their own communities and destroying their own belongings? They weren't necessarily aggressing towards for example, the white communities that were seen as the repressors, they were destroying their own community. Um, when we see, for example, uh, I think something just happened with the, uh, um, uh, the football team in Las Vegas. Um, uh, uh, what are they? Raiders. The Raiders. Uh, uh, the Raiders lost, I think, this last weekend, and they lit the stadium on fire. Um, and we see this with a lot of sports teams where people who strongly identify, we call them super fans, their identity is so tied to a, a team that when they lose, they aggress towards the team, towards the community. Uh, we've seen plenty of times when the L.A. Lakers have lost, L.A. almost goes up in fire. And we see this with the Green Bay and, and Midwestern, where there's really strong fan bases. And people ask, why are they destroying their own team, their own communities? Well, I want you to think of this in the guise of self-hatred. When somebody constantly belittles you, when someone constantly denies you access to something, you internally start to be angry with yourself. And you start, when we start to degrade ourselves, we start to think of ourselves as worthless. And we start to do self destructive behaviors. Well, this is just that on the group level. Okay. This is communities who have such hatred for their group because of what society has done to them. And they have such a cry for help that just like on the individual level, they start, we start to destroy our own communities. We start to destroy our own uh, stores, our own team memberships, our own town, because it is a form of self-hatred. And, and we go through the, the social degradation process as we would with individuals and start going through the, the, the safe um, aggressive harm towards ourself. And that actually is one of our best explanations of rioting behavior because um, a lot of people wonder why rioters riot in their own community and not in the communities that uh, were the perceived destructors, as you would say. Okay. So this is the, the, the dark side of identity and when identity is denied. Okay. And then we do have to ask what is necessary based on identity to create discrimination and something that was developed in the 1970s called the minimal group paradigm. Okay. And this is in a situation where 
if we take people into the lab setting and we randomly assign people flip of a coin to group A or group B, and then we have that group engage in some con competition of some type where one team can earn more points than another or something of a, a competition. That is the only thing necessary to create discrimination against group uh, against other groups. There's nothing special in these experiments about being part of group A or being part of group B. Uh, there's nothing to say that, that, that there's anything. It's just those groups. And then we start to see group A saying, yeah, I bet group B is uh, full of idiots. And group B is going, oh, I bet you they have lower IQs than us. Uh, because what are they trying to do? They're trying to identify with the place they were put in. And again, the only comparative group they have is that group that they're competing against, okay? And this research paradigm has consistently demonstrated that you don't really actually have to have a connection with the group. You just have to have group membership in order to start the discriminatory process. And even at the level in some research using the min uh, uh, minimal uh, group paradigm, people will actually often sacrifice personal gain for group gain, okay? And this is, I'm, I'm trying to think of a research. Um, well, we'll get to that later. Uh, I can't remember right at the moment, so. So we can see that these types of things, the, the, the only issue with this is this is in highly controlled lab conditions, okay? And so uh, what are the real world paradigms? Well, let's go to a field experiment, okay? I wanna spend the next few minutes talking about what are known as the robber cave studies by Sharif, Guttner, and Devoid. Robert Caves is a is in Robert Roberts National Park in Oklahoma, and and it got it got its name because there's some caves there that uh, Jesse James and his companion Bell Starr used to hide in when they were hiding from the law. So that's kind of the place that we're at. Okay, and for this research, they're going to pick. Uh, pick 22 psychologically well-adjusted 12-year-old boys. And what I mean by psychologically well-adjusted, they do good in school. They, they, they pass a battery of cognitive and learning tests. They don't have any history of abuse or neglect in their family. Uh, they don't have any history of trauma. And so what we have here is 22 young boys who are well-adjusted. They haven't had a lot of societal wrongs or family trauma or, or, or even scholastic issues, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to take them to a summer camp. And again, we're going to randomly divide them into two groups. One group is going to arbitrarily be called the Eagles, and the other group is going to be arbitrarily called the Rattlers, okay? 
And this map kind of shows uh, how we divided them. So we have the eagles on one side, the rattlers on the other. Okay, so we have a division. There's a border, if we want to call it a border. Um, and this is one territory, this is the other. Now, for the first uh, few weeks, um, they're not going to uh, know much about each other. In fact, uh, during the experiment, they brought one group in a day earlier than the other group so that there was no interaction between the groups. And for the first few days, they didn't even hear each other. But over time, they got closer and closer to the border and they could hear the other group on the other side. So, but they had no interaction whatsoever. They just were hearing them. So they knew or were aware of them, but they were engaging in team building activities with their group. So we can see here, they're, they're doing a tent thing. They're carrying a canoe. Uh, doing lunch together, helping each other climb a, a hill and the like, okay? And so for the first week, they were unaware of each other. Uh, they, they over time hurt each other and whatnot. But then in the second week, again, we're going to have them interact with each other in competition. So for the second week, they do things like, for example, tug of rope with each other, uh, baseball games, uh, very highly competitive games for the time. And this actually created a very hostile situation, okay? And, and to give some of the behavioral outcomes, to give some of the behavioral outcomes, uh, they started to fight with each other. They would vandalize each other's part of the camp. Uh, they would steal stuff from the other group. Um, they would start name calling and they would start all of these derogatory things towards each other. Again, only difference. One was the Eagles were called the Eagles. The others were called the Rattlers. Only true difference between these two groups. And then the introduction of competition. And so, and, and we can see the ratings. So this is, this is the Rattlers uh, group being judged. Um, we can see Rattlers would, would, would rate themselves better than they would, they would the Eagles. And we could see the same thing. The Eagles would rate the Rattlers less than, the, the, than their group. And so we see differences, right? In judgment of who's better, who's worse. Uh, we can see, this line right here represents liking behavior. And we can see, okay, in the first week, uh, you know, there was a wide variety of difference. And then we introduced competition right here. And we can see liking for the other group go way down. Okay. Uh, so here we have these kids who don't like each other because of their names who judge themselves as superior than the other group and have started behaviorally acting out aggressively, damaging property, vandalizing. So we can't send them home that way. <laughs> so the uh, researchers had to figure out a way to get them to, to work together. 
And so the first attempt was based on, again, this is the 1960s in that era. And at the time, the big sociological theory was uh, what we call mere exposure. And it was the basis of the reason why uh, schools integrated the way they were um, and, and, and restaurants were integrated. This is the integration between whites and blacks is because the theory was is just having that close proximity exposure to another person that's different will increase liking of that group. Well, if you remember in the first years of integration, it didn't work out so well. There was a lot of violence. And that's what we saw in the first attempt to bring these boys to liking each other is uh, I believe the, the, the first couple attempts were to get them to eat dinner in the same mess hall or in the same cafeteria. And it always ended up in either a fist fight or a food fight between the two groups. Okay. So the mere exposure effect really didn't help that much. Okay. The second attempt, though, um, used something called a superordinate goal. Okay. What a superordinate goal in this situation is something that would benefit the robber caves campsite, not individually the eagles or the rattlers. So it was something that was necessary for the entire campsite to be successful. And so implementing a, su a superordinate goals, they had to work together to move this uh, water tank and uh, move this uh, broken down truck. Uh, they had to do things to mutually clean up neutral camp areas. And uh, they had to do a whole bunch of things that required them to work together for a common good and not their individual good. And uh, we have them working together here and here. And what was the result? Well, after implementation of a superordinate goal, so this was the liking of each group uh, before. So this was this week one. This represents the after, after the superordinate goal. We found that the boys, regardless of whether they were rattlers or snakes, started to like each other more and started to cooperate more as well. Okay. So let's talk though about real world examples. And here's, here's that example. So this right here is the implementation of a superordinate goal. And we can see cooperation and liking increase. We see a negative behaviors right here. We see them instantly decrease. And again, we see positive behaviors. And all of this is the implementation of that superordinate goal, okay? So what are some real life examples of superordinate goals? Well, um, some have argued, some sociologists have argue, argued that 9-11 was an example of a superordinate goal. Because after 9-11, pretty much anyone who considered themselves as a citizen, not everyone, but the majority, had a focus for the country. And that was to get back at whoever it was that attacked the country, okay? And years uh, after, for years after 9-11, 
we saw the lowest rates of prejudice, the lowest rates of uh, hate crimes, the lowest, even lower, lower rates of things like domestic violence. We saw the lowest rates just after 9-11 and years to follow that we had seen since we've been recording hate crimes and prejudice and discrimination and domestic violence numbers for the previous 50, 60 years. Okay, for some reason, and we think it's because of this superordinate goal that something attacked all of us, that creative situation where we let down our individual group differences and we wanted to work towards this common goal. Now, unfortunately, um, just like a nerve cell has a rebound effect, so does uh, these sociological things. So um, uh, what a rebound is, effect is the return of some type of behavior that was previously repressed or previously done. And so unfortunately, what we saw is we saw those low rates for quite a few years, and then we saw a rebound effect. And if you've listened to the news lately, school gun shootings are up, hate crimes are up, discrimination are up. All of these things are now at some of the highest levels that we've seen in 40, 50, 60 years. So we've seen, unfortunately, the rebound effect of those low rates during those years. So, and that's, um, some have argued that uh, the rebound effect is the cause of, of the nationalist movement with Donald Trump that we've seen um, and the, the increase in what are called the white Karens, quote unquote, and, and the like. So um, uh, that some have argued you can trace that right back to those years just uh, be just after 9/11 when we actually saw peace between people in our country at a higher rate than than usual. Okay. So I want to stop here and I want to ask, uh, does anybody have any questions, comments, um, impressions? Um, does this alienate with anyone? Uh, what 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 are your thoughts about what we're talking about so far? Well, I'd like to mention something on, on that. Uh, it was a personal experience. We were having a, a game here at the college. Uh, there was four different groups. Group one at the end had like 3,000 points. Everybody had less. The last question was, uh, would put it within the game. You had to bet what money you had or how many points you had. Everybody was behind number one. So I, we talked about what are people gonna do? And I looked around, I remembered about this class. I said, well, just think it out. What are they gonna do? I said, well, that group over there is going to, they're winning. They're the smartest group. Uh, it's easy to tell they got double points on anybody else. So they're going to bet everything they have because they know everybody's going to try to catch them. And what's group number two going to do? So me and my group, we discussed it. We said, well, they'll probably bet the highest too, but they'll probably lose because they're really not that bright. They're not from here, so they don't know the answers to the questions, but they will try to when so they will bet everything. Same thing with the second team. 
And we were like in the middle. So, so what, do we do? What, what should we do? And I said, well, if they're going to bid everything and they're going to bid everything and they're not, they're going to bid everything, we should bid nothing. Let's bid nothing. Let's lose nothing. So we won't even answer the question. We'll just put a blank question mark on the board. Everybody thought that was a crazy idea. They didn't want to listen. But then they figured out, well, what the heck? If we bid everything we have and we lose, if we get the answer wrong, we lose. So either way, we're going to lose. I said, yeah, that's a possibility. So we bet nothing. We didn't answer the question. Everybody else bet. Everybody bet the max. Everybody lost. Guess who won? People with the lowest points ended up on top. And I was just studying the groups uh, from what I learned from this class. And I think that I thought that was pretty cool to put uh, put it into practice. Let's say. And having it work out, of course. Yeah, that is good, Frank. Uh, it actually it actually makes me think of a research about um, again competition, right? Right. Uh, we were just talking about competition. That's why. Yeah, and um, I'm trying to remember the exact research paradigm. This actually comes out of economic psychology, um, where where let's say um, a, a group, okay, a group of individuals, let's say if they bet one way, they will individually all wake, walk away, let, let's say $50, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but if they bet another way, individually, they'll only walk away with $5 each, but as a group, they'll have a bigger win over another group. Okay. Okay. So here you have individual advantage. If I bet the 50, I'll walk away with 50. But if I bet this other category, my team will win even bigger over the other team. And guess over trials and trials and trials of this, guess which one they most commonly go with. I don't know. I probably guess individually. The five dollar group, they yeah. give up fifty bucks for five. So their group had a bigger win over the other group, and walk away with less money individually. Wow. So so and that that kind of going with what you're saying, that's kind of the power of groups. You guys played the the game right to see, you know, you knew what they were gonna bet and you knew to win, you, your best position would just be to, yeah. right? right. And so we do find this over and over where, where people are willing to give up individual advantage in order just to win more than another group. And so it's kind wow. of interesting that you brought that up uh, with, with the, the I, I'm guessing it was, was that the activity today or was that one yesterday? Oh, that was yesterday. Yesterday, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that was yesterday, late. Yeah. 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 But you guys won. Oh, yeah. Nice, nice. Didn't, didn't bet nothing. Cool, that's nice. Um, anybody else, any other impressions about what we've talked about so far?
I'm good. I just wanted to bring that up. Hey, I, I thank you for that example. That was great. I don't have any impressions, but I I understand what you're talking about. Thank you, Sharon. Okay. Okay, well, let's um, let's go on just a little bit further. I want to go on at least about 10, 15 more minutes, and then um, we can call it a night. But there's a few other things that I want to cover for at least tonight, okay? Okay. My mic on? Yeah. <laughs> Get your coffee. All right. So... One of the things that, that, that we're often curious about, especially in sociology, is this notion of social mobility, okay? Social mobility is the process by which individuals attempt to change their social position by identifying less with their less status group to gain acceptance with as part of a higher status group, okay? Now, for social mobility to be truly social, we found that there has to be two necessary conditions, okay? And that is the situation must be stable and it must be legitimate, okay? So, you know, I think the best example of this is, is um, uh, okay, Tashina, thank you. Um, is that, you know, if I wanted to become a, an athlete, <laughs> that wouldn't be a stable or legitimate thing I could do uh, unless, you know, I took the next 10 years getting better in shape, okay? The second thing is, is that boundaries have to be permeable, okay? So uh, when we're talking about social status, remember we're talking about um, uh, dominant groups. Uh, so here in the United States, of course, we, we base it on things like race, uh, so white, black, Native American, Asian, uh, Mexican American, all of those, those, there's a hierarchy that we have, we, we have established. Uh, in the United States, social economic status, so we have a, you know, wealthy, professional, middle, working, uh, and then, of course, the, the, the lower or the, the non-working or, or unable to work groups, okay? And so uh, when we're trying to lift through these, what happens, okay, is that there's a couple problems that occur, is that more desirable members leave lower status groups. So it leaves those lower status groups with, with uh, people who, who have a kind of abandoned that group. And two, the individual seeking higher status never completely get accepted um, and end up in more of what we call a marginalized position. So this research has been done on, for example, uh, athletes um, um, uh, and whatnot. And, and for example, mainly between whites and blacks. So we can think of black athletes, we can think of black actors and singers. And what we have found that cognitively uh, it doesn't increase liking of, for example, whites to blacks to have uh, black athletes and, and, and black uh, actors and actresses. Because what happens is instead of uh, white uh, people viewing those individuals as a quality of a black person, 
they put them in a subcategory. They put them in a different category. Basically, what white uh, people do and in, 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 in the research that we have done is they take, for example, uh, Denzel Washington, and they take him out of the category of black people and put him in the category of Denzel Washington. Um, and we we found that they do the same thing with athletes. So, for example, a uh, uh, an athlete that is L.A. Lakers who is black, they don't associate that in athlete with being black. They only associate that athlete with being an L.A. Lakers. Okay. So even people who come out of their social status into a different one they're not always completely accepted. Um, and we also know that this also can create disconnect between people of a same, for example, racial category. So for example, if we survey black people about whether or not they feel like prejudice and discrimination still occurs in the United States, there is an income variable that mediates the relationship in that we find that Black people who make over $250,000 feel that racial discrimination in the United States no longer exists. It, it, it doesn't exist anymore. And that the people who are complaining about discrimination are just people who can't make it in their own life and so they're trying to blame someone else, okay? So even within a race, when a person tries to get out of their racial category, once they get to a certain status, they themselves will start denying the issues that exist within their original racial category that they were in, okay? And so social mobility, uh, has has issues with it. It's it's possible, uh, but it's not. Um, um, it doesn't always come to be what we think it would be. Um, there has been some research done, for example, with Native American youth. Um, um, as as many of you may know, as as the decades go on, we see more and more Native American youth wanting to disassociate with their tribal affiliation, with being Native American altogether. And they only want to associate with the dominant culture, okay? Um, a, a student of mine in my psychology and culture class put it the best, though he's a young man and he says, he has friends who say that they don't want to be the stereotype as a Native American, they want to be just an American. They don't want anything to do with that identity. And a lot of the evidence that we're showing, again, if we go back to that denial of identity, we find that a lot of these, these young people tend to get into uh, situations where they shouldn't have. They get into addiction, they get into uh, bad relationships, they get into all kinds of things. And we see, for example, a lot of students who leave a reservation and go into a mainstream university, a lot of times have a hard time with it, not because they're not capable, 
but because of that denial of their identity of where they come from. So they're lost and confused in that big wave of people at that university or college. Okay. And so when it comes to social mobility, and I'll, I'll, I'll regenerate this again, social mobility happens when a person helps their group progress. But it often fails when the individual tries to progress without their group. Um, and I think the movements of Martin Luther King speak to that, uh, where he individually wasn't going to just live a life with all of these issues. No, he wanted to take the entire population in a direction. Okay, and we can see that that uh, ended uh, in some successes with the civil rights movement. Uh, we can think of the women's movement in the early 20s with voting rights. Okay, there were a lot of uh, individual women pounding at the door saying, I should have the right, but it wasn't until they did it collectively that we saw the movement of, of women having the rights to, to um, uh, vote. And then later on, the same rights as men. Um, you know, it wasn't clear up into the 1950s and into the 1960s before the civil rights movement Healthcare decisions for women were made by their husband or father. It wasn't a female's individual right. If uh, when, when, when we look at Freud and psychotherapy, uh, the reason why there were so many women going to mental health providers is because it was the husband who thought they needed it. And so they were forcing them into that treatment of some type, okay? And it wasn't until we, again, we see the collective, and you want to think of like the feminist movements and those where people become collective instead of individual, that we see movement and social mobility, okay? And so, so those are kind of uh, some, some of the examples of social mobility. It's very successful if it happens at the group level, when you have good, strong leaders, and people who want to move their entire population and not just themselves. Okay. So the social structures and social statuses part of this lecture, I think we'll get into uh, next time we meet because it's gonna take a little bit longer than the time I wanted to take of you guys is tonight. Um, so I do want to go ahead and uh, just ask, is there any questions anybody has about social identity theory, social mobility, how identity develops uh, into either helping a person be strong, healthy, and well, versus how it can lead to self-destructive behaviors that we see? Is there any questions that anybody has? I'm good. I don't have any questions. Thank you, Shannon, and thank you, Keisha. Okay. So for tonight, let's go ahead and, and close up tonight. I do want to encourage everybody to really look at their identity over the fall break. 
Um, you know, in our in in the Tana Otham communities, we have Otham Tosh coming up. We have Saint Francis Day coming up. We have uh, this time of, of of gathering and whatnot. Um, and I would encourage you to really think about identity and how you see it and how you view it. Um, and I would encourage everybody to do that over the break, so that when we come back we can still continue these conversations about discrimination, prejudice, social issues, social deviance, and all those. Those are all topics that we have to cover, but then we can start looking at these kind of things more on your individual level and by doing things like social identity mapping and, and those types of things. So I'd encourage you all, and that's kind of why I wanted to do this lecture tonight, to take that time and really evaluate who you are as an individual. And remember that always has to do something with some type of group that you belong to, okay? So with that being said, I'm going to wish you all a happy fall break from this class. Um, make sure you get any missing assignments in and a week weekly reflections in, and we'll be good to go. Um, if you have any questions, again, the only times that the college is actually closed is this Friday and next Tuesday. So your instructors will still be available via email and phone call or if you need, have any questions. So please keep that in mind. With that being said, have a wonderful evening and take care, everybody.